little more at the end, but I feel like uh, the Lord has put a message on my heart for us this morning, and I want to share it with you. So if we could come back together, that would be awesome. This morning, Isaac asked me, Dad, are you going to have another funny story this week? And he said, is it? and I said, yes, of course we're going to have another story this week. He says, is it about me? And I said, no. And he said, is it about Emma? And I said, no. Is it about Amelia? I said, nope. And he goes, well, is it about you? And I go, well, I'm in it, but it's not about me. And he finally goes, it's about Janice, right? And, and I go, I'm not telling. He goes, I knew it. But it's not about Janice. It's actually about the college students. Mm-hmm. It's about the, yeah, they're all nervous now, collectively. They're all nervous. Um, come to church long enough, and you'll end up as a sermon illustration, right? It's because we're part of the Bible. And uh, so, have you guys ever really been in, a, like, a really dark place, um, you know, an alley or something, and you felt like something was creeping up on you? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you've been in a, like, I remember once, years ago, we went to L.A. for some missions training, and we were in Skid Row at night, and we were, like, working with homeless people and prostitutes, and it was like, you're just kind of, your eyes get really big. You know what I'm talking about? Your, your, your pupils actually dilate so you can see further. You, you feel like something like a large cat or a dinosaur is lurking around the corner of the building, and so your whole body is just tuned to, and like you're vibrating, you get this surge of adrenaline. Your, your body literally does this. You get a surge of adrenaline when you're in these dark places so that you can either turn and fight the dinosaur or run away quickly. And that's, that's, that's like this biological thing that happens to us. And I, I've been thinking about it. I, I really hate that feeling. How I many of you like that feeling? Anybody here like the feeling of that, that you get, that fear? Anybody like that? Because there are weird people like that. They're out there. Um, I, I don't really like that feeling unless I'm the one that is lurking around the corner. That's right, aha. So there's this game that both the youth and the college students like to play. It's called Sardines. Is anybody familiar with the game Sardines? Yes, we played Sardines together uh, with the young adults, and we play it with the college students. And here's how it works, or the young adults and the high school students and uh, middle school students, but here's how it works. So first of all, Somebody goes through this building and turns off all the lights everywhere. Now, I don't know if you've noticed about it, but when we turn this about this building, there's like very few windows. I think there's like four windows in the whole place. And uh, it gets really, really dark. It's a cave of a building. And so one person's supposed to go hide somewhere in this dark cave of a building, and then everybody's supposed to come find that person. And when they find, when, when you, one of you, would find that person hiding, your job is to sit down wherever they're at. If it's in a cupboard, to stick yourself in the cupboard with them. If it's, you know, in a dark, dark corner someplace, you're supposed to stick up right next to them and then be absolutely silent and wait for other people to come find you. And the goal of the game is that everybody in the building compacts themselves into this one dark corner, everybody but the last person. The last person is out. They're the loser, and they get to be the sardine the next time. So I recall a time where I was hiding, and I hid in the corner of, a, of the nursery. And the nursery is in the back corner over there. And I'm pretty sure that it is the darkest place in this entire building. There are literally no windows, no light, nothing creeps in there. In fact, I took a picture. Here it is. This is what it looks like in there. 
that's real. <laughs> this is Simon this morning goes, hey, there's a black spot on your slide. Did you intend to do that? I'm like, no, it's a picture. And this is what it looks like in the nursery. So I, I climbed into the nursery and I went all the way around the corner and I, I got to the darkest, furthest corner I could. And I tucked myself up in a little tiny ball and I hid. And sure enough, some of the college students come wandering into that room. And, you know, college students go everywhere in pairs or herds. So there was like three or four of them. And, and it was all girls. And they were like, it's so dark. I knew. Ah, oh, you touched me. You know, and they're like freaking out. I'm sure their eyes are wide. They got the adrenaline going. It's so dark. And they creep in and they trip over a table and there's laughter. And I'm just like keeping totally silent, trying to, you know, trying not to laugh. And eventually, like, somebody crawls on hands and knees across the floor and touches my foot. Scared me to death. Scared them. I'm like, whoa! I just pulled away, and they screamed and let everybody know where I was at. And then eventually, they all came rustling and running in there, letting everyone know exactly where I was at. I'm wondering, why is that fun? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's human nature to not like that feeling that you are being watched, that somebody is going to jump out of the dark and get you. But I wonder, though, why is it that when we get into these dark places, when we find ourselves in a dark room, that we always assume that whatever is there is out to get us? It's dangerous. Have you ever considered, like, that what if in the dark places there might be something good? Oh, <laughs> I guess you don't need the sermon anymore. You can go home. I mean, what if there's something good, something fighting for us that we can't see? Turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. I didn't go to Genesis. So last week, um, Audrey started um, this, or gave a sermon. Which I just, I've been pondering it all week. Thank you for that. I mean, Jesus spoke to me last week about exile and home and that feeling of it's not home. This isn't right. Things are not like they ought to be. And that longing for heaven, that longing for, for God's presence, that longing for a space where, where everything is made right and just waiting and, and anticipating that. This is taking place, this story is taking place in that place of exile. So if you haven't found it yet, it's uh, going to be to the left of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those books you all know, to the left of that, and to the right of Psalms, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It goes like that. So you'll find it there. So these guys are in exile. This is a story out of exile where Israel has been taken from their homeland, <clears throat> excuse me, drug into exile, and they're living there. And, and this is specifically about a story of three young men. They were children at one point. I mean, children. they were children at one point. Sometimes I make really smart statements, don't I? They were children at one point. It's a miracle. How did that happen? Oh, man. So anyway, they're uh, physically in exile. Uh, they're children. They were taken from, take, as children, taken from their families. And their parents had been nobles, so they were brought into the king's service. So they went from a high place of authority where they had all the power and wealth and, and all of that in their own country. And then they were taken into exile and made as servants to the king. And uh, so as servants to the king, their job was really to learn the ways of Babylon. They were supposed to eat what they eat, do what they do, dress the way they dress, wear the same hats that they wear. You know how the saying goes, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. 
That's actually when in Rome, I think, but it, 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 it works. We'll translate it over. So they are supposed to eat and do and worship the way they worship. Now, we have a story before this where the, these three guys and Daniel refused to eat what the king was trying to feed them. We have, a, <clears throat> and excuse me, because of how this turns out, these guys get elevated to a position of authority. And it doesn't take a long time before they come into conflict, though, again with the king. To make a long story short, the king of Babylon decides to set up an idol of himself. Great big gold idol. It's measured in cubits. I'm not even sure how long a cubit is, but it's big, it's tall, it's wide, and it's made of solid gold. And it looks just like him. And he comes up with a great idea. He says, everybody, when, we get in the, when the worship music begins, and this is probably the worst worship music in the world because it was like tambourines and horns and flutes and bangers and who's a mega dayers. I mean, all these like names of instruments that are belonging to Dr. Seuss' book. And you know, everybody's together and he says, when everybody blows and makes this horrible noise, <laughs> I added that word, makes this noise, everybody's to bow down and worship this image. And so the moment comes. The horns blast, all the sounds are made, the tambourines go and not on time, and it's just this noise, and a whole city of people bows down on their knees, except for there's these three guys in the back of the room. There's always three guys in the back of the room. I tell you, worship leaders, there's three guys. They're just always back there, but God's doing something in them. And so there's these three guys in the back of the room, and God's doing something in them, and they don't bow down. They don't bow down. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you guys know this story probably. But even though they were in a very dark place under the king's power, where they'd had everything taken from them, all the comforts of home, they refused to submit to the rule and authority of that place of exile. So here we see the confrontation of the boys and the king. We're going to start at verse 16. I'm going to read this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. So the king saw what happened. He drugged them before them. And that's probably how it happened. Like literally drugged them. And he said, if you guys don't bow down, you're going into a furnace, a fiery furnace. And so this is what they replied. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Say that with me, is able. Is able. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, say if not. Somebody say that a little louder. If not, yeah, I need you guys to help me this morning. I I can't preach this on my own. I'm going to need your help. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I love when the Bible uses flowery language like that. Filled with, you can imagine, like, it's almost like a cartoon. His eyes get really big, and there's like this trembling in the blood vessels in his eyes, and he's shaking with fury, because nobody denies the king. He's filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the burning, fiery furnace. 
verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And their appearance, the appearance of the fourth, is like the son of the gods. There was a presence in the fire. Say that word presence with me. Presence. This is what we're going to talk about today is presence. Presence. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal to us this morning your presence. I pray that we would discover again your loving presence living with us in all circumstances and all places. God, lead us into that presence this morning. Amen. Presence, it's the theme that I want to take and talk to you from the text today, from this uh, story out of exile. But I want to show you from the whole story of the Bible. That's what we've been doing all along in this series, Storied. The idea is that we see this story connected to the whole big picture story of the whole Bible. And ultimately, we find our stories caught up in this king and his kingdom stories. Now, we could break up this big story, the Bible, into about five chapters. We should have done this at the beginning instead of at the end, but I'm going to do it at the end anyway, okay? So it kind of looks like this, and I'm going to take this theme of presence and show you how it fits through the whole Bible, all right? You ready? Brace yourselves. Here it comes. So chapter one looks like this. It's God's good creation, the king's good creation. That's Genesis chapters one and two. In Genesis chapters one and two, my favorite part of the whole Bible, we see God's presence, hovering above the waters before creation. We see God's presence as a voice speaks, and into existence comes this good creation, including you and me, man and woman, male and female, donkeys, animals, dinosaurs, the whole nine yards just spoken into existence by God's presence. The whole story begins with God's presence in his good creation, the king's good creation. God made it, and it's good. The second chapter of God's king and his kingdom story is the, the horrible, terrible fall. We're all familiar with that, and we all live in the results of that today. Man turns on the king, and everything is destroyed. The relationship between God and man is destroyed. All the way down to the de- tiniest details of creation, everything is messed up. Brother against brother, husband against wife, nation against nation, the man against creation itself. But in the midst of all of this brokenness, God is still present. If you read Genesis chapters 3 through 11, you will see in these stories God watching, his presence still hovering, his heart grieved, his, his, his feelings are hurting over this horrible, terrible fall. But then chapter 3 begins, and this is where God enters into the story again, his presence coming in to begin to shape and transform it. We could call this chapter Covenant Community, and it's the longest chapter of the whole Bible because it begins at Genesis chapter 12 with the calling of Abraham, and it goes all the way to Micah, which is the very last book of the Old Testament. So if you're looking in your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the beginning of the New Testament. This story, Covenant Community, did I say the wrong book? Malachi is what I meant. And I have Malachi written, but I said Micah. Ooh. Anyway, 
So this big, huge chapter has these enormous themes that we've been talking about, heaven and earth colliding. We have exile and home. We have covenant and community all formed in this time. God is coming in and working actively through this whole part of the story where he shows up as a burning bush, as a pillar of fire, as a voice on a mountainside, as the sound of sheer silence coming to prophets. God's presence is written large through this development of his kingdom, covenant, community. And we hear him, his power at work. We see him always calling, always rescuing, even in the darkest of moments. But chapter 3, covenant community doesn't end real well because people still rebel against God over and over again. And they're running But God continues to pursue him. The psalmist says that you pursue us with your steadfast love. It's this pursuing, following, chasing love that goes to the darkest parts of the world, the darkest parts of our hearts and our lives. And his presence is still with his people, even in exile, as we see here in Daniel chapter 3. Chapter 4 of this story, though, is probably your favorite. It's the Jesus story. It's the Christ story. It's called Jesus which Jesus means our God saves. Heaven collides with earth again. Only this time, God doesn't just come as a cloud or a pillar or a presence or a voice. He comes as a man. He puts on an earth suit and becomes one of us. And Jesus says crazy things like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God's presence is with us. The book of Matthew, it starts with this crazy declaration by the angels, and it says, that he will be called Jesus, our God saves. And then it goes on, the Bible goes on to say that it is made, this is happening because there was a prophecy in the Old Testament where he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God coming with us. And then Matthew ends with Jesus himself declaring, and I am with you, always to the ends of the age. Now I find that little promise a little strange because Jesus says that as he ascends into heaven. That's how the gospel of Matthew has it. He says, surely I am with you always to the ends of the age. Goodbye. What? How is that supposed to work? It shouldn't actually be a surprise, and it probably was somewhat of a surprise to these guys. They, had to, they were standing there. They had to like, get their brains working. They had to, as Poirot says, work the little gray cells. And they had to remember back to some of the things that Jesus said, because Jesus himself promised them that he would die, that he would go away, but that he would return. And he also promised them that not only was he going to return, but he was going to leave again. And when he left again, he would send a helper, the Holy Spirit. His own presence would come to them. Jesus' words are an echo of the words that we hear in the book of Deuteronomy, where God says to Moses and to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those are words that Jesus never actually said. I was surprised because that's what I thought. So where this all began, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus, that you said that. And Jesus never did. But he did say, but he did say that I am going and I will send you a presence, the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what he does in chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter four. He sends the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, to not just hover over, to not just be around, but to live in his people. It comes as a, as a wind. It comes as a fire. 
It comes as the sound of sheer silence, and it fills these people as a breath, and they come alive. We return to Genesis chapter 2 as God's image is formed in his people, and they walk out the doors of that building, and they become the church. And then the Bible starts using all kinds of different language for us, his people. Instead of saying his people, they start calling us a holy priesthood. They start calling us a temple built stone upon stone that houses the presence of God. We become the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. In short, we become, you and me, the presence of God to the people around us. A holy nation, representatives of his presence. The story ends with chapter 5, which we said from the beginning is where this whole story is going, right? We need to know the end to understand where we're at in the middle. But here we see a completion, Revelation 21 and 22, just two chapters out of this whole thing, just like two chapters in Genesis tell us the beginning, two chapters are going to show us the ending. And what does it look like? It looks like God's presence living among us. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will make my dwelling among them. The physical presence of God moving and entering and weaving through and joining together and being among us. Presence. Say that again, would you? I need to wake you up. Say presence. Presence. In his presence, all fear is erased. In his presence, all sorrow is gone. In his presence, tears are dried up. His presence restores and heals all things. So just to be sure you know what this is all about, it's God's presence. In this story, this big story, this Genesis to Revelation story, of which our story is inserted into the middle of it, God's presence is over every page and has been over every page of your life since before you were born. And that is hard to imagine, and it's easy to forget, because we live in a world that is sometimes dark and scary. We live in a world that is full of pain. We live in a world that is full of struggles. We live a life that has brokenness and and need written all over it, even the best of us. Many of us want to believe that we don't walk with a limp, We want to believe that there is people in this world that are not broken, that don't have problems. And yet, if we look deeply at any one of our stories, including my own, you will find great brokenness. And yet, in the midst of that, God's presence is with you. Now, I want to go back to this story of the three boys and draw just two things from it. Just two things and reveal to you something about his presence that I believe that God is speaking to you. This message, we went to Montana last Monday to visit my parents. I hadn't seen them in a year and a half. And uh, so I was kind of have the parent thing going on and thinking about this sermon and trying to write it. I was like, I, I got nothing, Jesus. And <laughs> I got nothing. I kept reading the word in different places. And I wanted to do a Jesus story, but God kept leading me back to this idea of presence. And in a, in a dream, God brought me to this, this passage. And he wanted to reveal these two things to you and to me. So this is God's word for you. So let's do this, would you? Um, Would you just hold out your hands for a moment and just say, I'm ready to receive what you have for me, Lord? Jesus, I'm just ready to receive from you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. So the first thing I want to call your attention to is this. 
And I want you all to say it with me, like you're awake and that you are Pentecostal people of God, okay? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church that liked to shout and then an Assembly of God church that I like to dance. So I need your help. Everything is for you. Say that with me. Look to the person next to you and poke them on the shoulder and say, everything is for you. So these three young guys appear to have everything against them. They appear to have everything against them. Everything that they have known and loved and cherished and cared about has been taken from them. They are under the authority of a foreign ruler who cares nothing for them. Everything. If anybody has a right to be a victim and to complain, it's these three guys. Right? They should be experiencing PTSD. Right? It's what should be going on with these. We should be reading stories about how they wrestled with anxiety and fear. And yet, we see something radically different. Their whole life was destroyed. And you would have, you know, we should have this, and you would have thought. I think God would have, it would have been cool if they had written that in there. And you would have thought that they had been like this. You would have thought that they had just been fearful and scared all the time. And yet, they seem to remember that the presence of God is with them. They remember the presence of God through their story. Now, I remember Audrey last week told us, in exile, this is when most of the Bible, most of the Old Testament was actually gathered. A lot of these stories were just oral tradition. And they were in this, this country where they said, hey, you're in Babylon, so you need to be Babylonian. And they said, well, what does it mean to be Jewish in the midst of this exile? And they began to write down their stories to remember this is who we are. This is the God we serve. And one of the things they remembered is that God is with us. That God is with us. Right here in this dark moment, they believe that their God is able and waiting to deliver them. But even if he chose not to act, they would be loyal to him. In his fury at their disobedience, the king heats a furnace so hot that even these mighty guards, the biggest guys that their army had to offer, they got cooked just getting close to it. This is a, a refining furnace. This was a metal smelting furnace. They would take the raw materials of steel or bronze, and they would heat it and melt it and forge swords, and they would forge weapons and pikes and things like that. It was a refining, excuse me, a refining furnace. And the, the fire of that refinery where raw materials are melted down, was so hot that it would kill people. And it was in that fire that these three men were thrown, wearing their hats, it says, the hats of Babylon, wearing their coats of Babylon, wearing the the things of their world, the things of their life, and they were thrown into another world where God was present. Their courage is outstanding, and we read this story from the perspective of courage, but what we often miss is the perspective of presence. That it wasn't just their courage that caused all this, it was God's faithful presence that was with them. They believed deeply in the faithful presence of God. And yet they said, and even if he doesn't, this fire, you have no power over us. What you want to do to us, what you do to in, intending to harm us, God intends for our good. And in that moment, they are refined by that fire, and something beautiful is made. Some of you today, you're in a fire. 
You feel the heat all around you. There's one thing that I've learned as a pastor in this church is that life can be very difficult. I think I came believing that life was sometimes difficult for me, and I didn't realize that I, was the, I thought I was the only one. But I found out that each and every single one of us has our own fiery furnace. Each and every single one of us has our own king who is there commanding us to bow down or get into the fire. Each and every one of us finds ourselves in dark places. We face all sorts of trials, all sorts of pains. It may be a sickness, a chronic illness that goes on and on and on in your body. It may be chronic anxiety or depression or chemical dependency or drugs or alcohol. It may be the pain of divorces. You may be having more than one in your life, and you feel like you walk around with a a big red A on your shirt, a scarlet letter that says you're forever broken. You may have lost family members. There is a list that is longer than I could ever begin to speak that describes the fiery furnaces that we each face. But at all times and in all places, know this, that everything is for you to refine you and God's presence is in the midst of that fire. That God is here and present to mold you and to shape you into his image, to draw others to him and to build you into the best you that you will ever be, to create you and refine you into who you were intended to be from before time began. That's why Paul, knowing this love, knowing this presence, that's why Paul is able to say after shipwrecks, after beatings, after being accused of things he didn't do, after being imprisoned and beaten some more, he is able to say this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody needs to get excited about that. Occasionally I preach. Occasionally. And you got to be ready for it. You may be here today. And you feel like you're in the kiln. You feel like you're into the heat of the fire. In the furnace, you are pressed. You are anxious. Your eyes are wide. Your adrenaline is going. You're ready to run. You're groping about in the dark, wondering if God is even real. And you need to hear today that God is real. And not only that, He is present. There is no hospital room that He is not in. There is no funeral home that he is not in. There is no divorce that he is not in the midst of. There is no anxiety that can separate you from him. No matter what the fire you find yourself in, no matter how hot the flames, there is another in the fire with you. Hillsong's wrote a song about that. You might want to go look it up. There's another in the fire. It's like been with me all week. There is another in the fire standing next to you. And he is working out everything for your good. It is all for you. It is not against you. You may be persecuted, but you are not abandoned. You may be struck down, but you will not be destroyed because God's loving presence is with you. That's from 2 Corinthians. Everything is for you. The second thing that Jesus wants us to hear and receive this morning as a church is this. And I want you to look at the person next to you and say this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
that was kind of whispery. It was like sounded like a lot of snakes. So the S's and Jesus. So let's try that. If you say it slightly louder, the snakes disappear. So let's try that again. Just say it. Just like you don't have to whisper it. Just say it out loud. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Oh, thank you. Somebody said it to me. I needed that. The temptation that these three boys from Jerusalem faced was to be cowed into taking their eyes off of Jesus. Now, you know, it's God in this particular story, but Jesus and God are the same thing. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. So we're going to say Jesus. The temptation was to take their eyes off Jesus and to turn it to the king and to his idol. The temptation was to take their eyes off of God and to bow down to what seems like the greater power. The Bible over and over and over again warns the Israelites not to turn to other gods. And mostly we think, hey, we don't do that because how many of you have idols on your, your uh, mantle place at home, right? You, you went and you bought a little idol and you put it in your house and you come home and you worship it. Maybe you go to the Thai restaurant and you bring your little offering and you place it before the Buddha. I mean, none of us do that, right? Most, I mean, okay, maybe one of us. We don't. We're like, hey, I know the Ten Commandments, and the first commandment is, you know, love the Lord your God only. You know, have no other idols. It's like, it's what we're not supposed to do. But some of us might be aware enough to know that even though we say we don't worship idols, and even though we don't carve one and we don't put it on our mantle place, we have things that we worship other than God. You can always recognize an idol by its ability to draw your attention away from Jesus. I'm going to say that again. You can always recognize an idol by its ability to draw your attention away from Jesus. It's that thing that says, look at me. It's that thing that says, pay attention to me. It's that thing that takes your time, your energy, your money, your power as a person. It's that thing that draws you. The furnaces, the furnace that they threaten in this life are pretty subtle. It might be, do this, or your child will be unloved or feel unloved. Buy them this thing, or they will not feel like you care about them. Or they might not get into a certain school. If you don't pay to have their ACT taken for them, they won't make it into UCLA. UCLA happens to be the God in that story, in case you're wondering. It might be, spend your money this way, or be sent into the furnace of unhappiness. Or we find ourselves in tight spots in life. Some of the things that I mentioned before, the refining furnaces, the temptation in those places is to turn to something other than God for relief. Might be the temptation to, a, to turn to a drug. Might be a temptation to turn to cigarettes. It might be a temptation to turn to alcohol. Those are obvious things. The less obvious things, movies. That's my temptation. I go into entertainment. It's where I want to go. Hey, there's a whole other world here. I don't have to live in this world. I can go right to this, you know, sci-fi world or wherever it is. It might be food. You just eat because it's comfort eating. Comfort food. Where do we even get that, right? Makes me feel comfortable. Perhaps you're in a season of woundedness because of what somebody did or said. Perhaps at church. Perhaps at work. And you're in such pain that you're wondering how you could continue to even come to church to trust Christians or maybe even believe in God. You're attempted to close off. 
and to self-protect. I know that temptation. To run from the heat of the furnace. To stay in the safety of isolation. But there is another in the fire calling you. There is another in the fire standing beside you and he's saying, keep your eyes on me. Don't look at the king. Don't bow down, but stand firm in the pain and allow me to refine you. Henry Nouwen once wrote this. He says this, the spiritual life starts at the place where you can hear God's voice, where somehow you can claim that long before your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your school, your church touched you, loved you, and wounded you, long before that, that you were held safe in an eternal embrace. You were seen with the eyes of perfect love long before you entered the dark valley of life. That love existed long before it was ever reflected in the imperfect love of the people around you. And it can never be found at the feet of an idol. It can never be found at the feet of an idol that we look to for protection, for, for provision, for comfort or security. That perfect love is reflected in who? Jesus. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. You, right in this moment, in your furnace, are in the loving presence of Jesus. His presence has never left you, and it never will leave you. So everything is for you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Everything is for you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be distracted by by the news. Don't be distracted by politics. Don't be distracted by pain and fear and suffering and this uh, painful view of the future. Don't be distracted by anxiety. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Focused on the author and perfecter of life and faith. I want to close with this. With this. I want to take a couple of minutes in silence. Man, this has gone so well. We got 15 minutes to like be in the presence of God. I want to take two minutes of silence. Two minutes of just sitting in the loving presence of Jesus. Two minutes of turning our eyes to him.